Hello guys, my name is Stefan. Uh, I help out with the kids and the coffee out there, so I might have seen you this morning. If I did, hello. Um, we're going to be reading from Colossians 1, for verses 1 through 14 on page 572. If you guys want to turn there, give you a second. All right. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and you truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience." And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Stefan. Good morning. How are we doing? Oh, you are good over there. My name's Josh. I get to preach this passage. A few things. Uh, last week was Easter. Thank you for those of you invited. It was a sweet, sweet weekend. We had around 400 people, 300 adults, 100 kids, which is crazy because November of 2020, we kicked off with a pre-service and we had about 50 people there. So uh, the lead team meets every month, the lead pastors of all 10 redemption congregations. And we were just kind of praying and thanking God for Easter. And they said, what's updates with North Mountain Josh? And I just said, our people are very inviting. Like there's a hospitable, welcoming just presence here. And they're tough because they've had no AC for three weeks now. And there's been minimal. So we got to be tough one more week because Friday they said they fixed it. And we still have portable AC units. So luckily today is only going to be about 86 outside and about 80. 5.4 in here by the end of this service. So uh, we get to start a new book in the Bible. Um, here's what I want to just start with. There was a study years ago, this mega church wanted to know, like, how good are our people doing as far as spiritual growth? And they put all this money into this thing. All these churches of all sorts of denominations, sizes, veins, locations in the country. And here's the thing they came back with. Here's the one thing. Here's the most catalytic thing you can do for your people. Because here's the thing that sparks, sustains, and promotes spiritual growth more than anything. It's like, all right, what is it? Personal Bible reading. If you can get your people, get their own faces in their own Bibles, you got them. And I've been meeting with our leaders of different ministries in this church, and that's kind of one of the things that's been coming to the surface. Like, what do our people need right now? And across the board, whether it's men's or women's or married ministry, is we really need to help our people get in the Bible. 
for themselves. Stay in the Bible. That does not mean Sunday is not important. Church is not important. This is not, there's not, there's other things involved in spiritual formation. But just the fact that we need to get in the Bible is a big, big deal. So I just want to start with just how I do my Bible reading, and then we're going to jump into Colossians because I'm excited. I get up in the morning, groggily, after like 16 snoozes, I have like six different alarm clocks. One makes me do a math problem. One makes me take a picture in the garage. One makes me spin around six times. And when all those are done, I'm finally up, and I'm ready to drink my coffee and read. And I open this up, and I have the same journal I've had for years now, and I write what God speaks to me in whatever I'm reading. And then this is my little prayer holder thing. It's just index cards with cards of prayer. Like this first one is, that's just our neighborhood and the different neighbors, none of which are believers. And I pray a little, and then I go about my day. And I've been doing that, not since I became a Christian. It was about five years into being a Christian when that started. But I just encourage you, as we start a new book, God says, his mercies are new every day. Take this as a new mercy to get into the word, maybe for the first time. Like, I know if you love Jesus, you have the Spirit, you know you should. You just don't know how or have the sort of tips, maybe. It's, it's not that complicated. Here's what I did. I listened to Colossians taking my boys to the dentist appointment the other day. My house, 32nd Street and Cactus, to Tatum and Bellish. It was a 12-minute drive, and I listened to the whole book of Colossians, audio-wise, on that drive with the boys. So you could go audio. Aubrey asked me today. Do you count audiobooks as books? It doesn't really matter. If you're listening to God's word, that's what matters. So if you can get into God's word, get into it. Here's what we want to do to help you. We have these Colossians books, five bucks. You can go buy it from Heather and her team out there. But this is a walk through the entire series. It's a two-month series. We'll get through this book very quick. But if you want a study guide, if you're in an RC, go get one of these five bucks, and it'll help you get into the word of God because there is nothing, nothing, nothing like meeting the creator of the universe simply by opening up this book, which is a gift he's given to us. It's amazing. So that's what I want. I want to meet God in his word, even as we open up Colossians. So I just want to stop. Let's pray. Let's close our eyes, quiet our hearts. Paul in another book says, knowledge puffs up. That's not what we want. But we want to meet Jesus through his word. So let's just sit silently. Father, we don't need more sermons or more talking heads. We need more of you. And the way we get that is by sitting under sermons, is by opening up the word in our homes. So we want more of you. As we open up this book, which was written to a different church in a different country in a different time and place, we pray that your spirit would meet us in our day, in our time, in our place, with our concerns and our hopes and our fears, and you would meet us, and there would be a collision of our lives and this word, and the Spirit of God would work in and through us because we open up your book and submitted ourselves to it. So, Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So quick intro into the book of Colossians. Here's kind of typical questions people would ask to like, what is this Colossians book? So who is writing this? Let's just look together. Verse 1 and verse 2. What is the setting of the book of Colossians? It says Paul. 
Paul, who are you? He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is a younger guy. It's his ministry partner. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is writing this. When they write letters back in this day, they start with who they are. They don't end with and Paul. So that he's just telling you up front who he is. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae, which is a town in Turkey which no longer exists. I'm writing this to you, church people in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. What's the connection piece between Paul and Colossae? Because Paul has never been to nor will ever go to Colossae. It's just a letter. That's his only relationship with him. Jump down to verse uh, 7. How did this Colossian church start? There's another guy involved. Verse 7 says, Just as you, talking to the church, learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Pause right there. So those are the characters at play. So we've got Paul, Timothy's his partner. We've got this Epaphras guy, and we've got this church at Colossae. What's the connection? So Paul goes to all these like major cities, goes into the synagogues, preaches, usually causes a riot, usually gets beat up, often gets put in jail, but people get saved as he goes to major city, major city. He'd be in New York, he'd be in Seattle, he'd be in San Francisco, he'd be in New York, or he'd be in St. Louis. He'd go to all the big cities, he'd preach, people would get saved. In one of those preaching moments, Epaphras gets saved, who is from Colossae. And he hears the message of the gospel and he receives it and he goes back to his hometown and what does he do? He shares what he just heard and other people get saved and a church is birthed. And now he's on a visit and he's seeing Paul. Paul is probably in a Roman prison right now, which is sort of like a hard term to say, but it's like a house arrest. He's tied up in a house. He can't really leave, but he can have visitors. Epaphras brings him news of the church at Colossae and says, here's how's it going. How's it going? It's going great. He says, here's what's going great. Here's what's not going great. That's the, the connection we have here. And he's going to be, this letter's going to be brought back to Colossae by a guy named Tychicus, which we'll read in another book. So Paul's in prison. Epaphras is the person who gets saved first, starts this church in this little podunk town. And now this letter's going to get brought back. Colossae reminds me a lot of like our, just our geographical moment too because it was co sort of centered between two major cities. It was sort of this forgotten place. And I think about North Phoenix, like no one's like, you know what's the place to live? North Phoenix. Like what do you mean North Phoenix? You know, like 51 and Greenway. Like that's where, like everyone wants to be downtown. That's where cool people live and Intel's in the Far East Valley. But it's like, it's this place that people love and adore and Epaphras loved and adored this place and he starts a church and he gets a letter from the apostle. Paul to bring back, and that's what we have before us in this Bible, is this book here. Now, why is Paul writing specifically this letter? Primarily because there's some concerns. Colossae has, is mostly Greek, but you've got this Jewish legalism, which we'll encounter as we walk through this book, but you've also got this sort of pagan, rampant, sexuality and immorality. And in the church, you have both sort of entering in and doing damage in the church. And Paul is writing this letter to be sent back, to be read, to correct, to teach, and to tell them a better way, namely in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a cute little thing I used to do uh, with youth group, and it's, I'm like, eh, have I outgrown that? I have not yet, because it does a good job of showing the big picture of a book. You can take any, go to word cloud, put any words you want into this thing, and then it makes this image to tell you what's the word that is most prominent. What is this letter, book, paragraph, 
home about. So as we take Colossians, all of it, and place it into this, what is this about according to just Christ? You're like, yeah, obviously we're in church, but not all books are that. Christ, that's why this is called Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. Paul wants people to lift up their eyes to a bigger vision of God than they currently have. And the only way you get that is if you look at Christ, who is in all things, through all things, for all things, king over all things. He wants this little podunk church to realize they're a part of something bigger. Their king is supreme. He is Christ. And he matters, not just on Sunday. He matters all of life. And Paul writes this Colossians letter, which is sort of like, here's how you get all of life, all for Jesus, in your bones, Colossian church. And we get to sit under and read it and spend time with it and learn about King Jesus. Now, here's what's fascinating, because there's major issues that need to be addressed. Like when he said legalism in in Jewish faith and this sort of pagan stuff, I'm like, that's what I'd go after right away if I was one, just based off my personality. Like I'd write a letter, all right, verse one, get your act together. This is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. Paul does not start there. He starts very hopefully optimistic about what this little church, maybe like 40 people are in this church, just so it's not like, it's smaller than this. What this little church is capable of because they know King Jesus. So we're going to look at his first 14 verses, which essentially is mostly just a prayer. Like, I want to lift this church up in prayer. And what do you do in prayer? This is how I teach my kids to pray, and this is how we're going to walk through. You thank God for stuff. Thanks. You ask God for help with stuff. And you say, wow, you praise God. And that's sort of what we're going to walk through with Paul is, what is he thankful for? What is he asking help for? And what is he just like, wow. That's what we're going to walk through as we walk through this. So the first thing is thanks. What do we see Paul thanking the Father for? Verse 3 through verse 8. Let's just read this together. What is Paul so thankful for? This little city that he'll never actually get to. He only knows about from one connection from a guy named Epaphras, but he is full of thanksgiving. He says this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it is also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What is Paul so thankful for as he pens this letter? First thing I see is he's thankful that the gospel changes people. I'm thankful that when we pray for you, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints and the hope that you now have laid up for you. That is what it means to become a Christian. Your faith, your hope, and your love now have something substantial to hold on to. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And I am thankful, Paul says, that you now have faith in Christ Jesus. Your love is actually spilling out and it's now going towards the saints. And you have a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. I'm thankful that the gospel has changed you. More than that, though, he's not just 
thankful for individual conversions. He's thankful for the, brand, the broad scope of the gospel. What does he say in verse 6? Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Pause right there. It's increasing. It's expanding. The whole world is the description Paul would say, which is mind-blowing. Like, what was their strategy? I've loved watching Elon Musk in this Twitter thing. Like, what's his, what's his angle? My kids are all about it. Like, we're just locked in. Like, is he going to buy Twitter? This is phenomenal. He's got all this money, all this strategy, all this just bravado. What was Jesus' sort of strategy for spreading a gospel message throughout the whole world? God in the flesh comes to earth, grabs a fisherman, a tax collector, a zealot, you over there, you over there. Hey, let's hang out for a couple years. And then he dies on a cross, walks out of his own grave, hangs out for another 40 days. He says, just so you know, I've got one more gift to give you before I'm really gone. I'm going to send my spirit which will fill you. And the Spirit comes down in the book of Acts, and that group, which was originally 12, is now 40, and then thousands and thousands. And these Spirit-filled followers of Jesus now spread out, and the gospel now has expanded across the entire globe with no killer strategy, no resource, just by changed lives. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, would say, changed lives, changed lives. How does the gospel spread? Because changed lives, changed lives. And it has now gone to the whole world. And Paul is thankful for that. Like I've been convicted already, week one in Colossians, of how sort of myopic my vision is of just the world. Like I've got my kids, my wife, my family, my little church, my little pocket of life. And Paul's like already just praising God for everything, for stuff that he's never even going to get to see firsthand. I was like, when have I prayed for a church that I will never actually walk in the doors of? And that's what Paul's doing in this case. He's thanking God for the gospel change, the conversions, for the gospel growth, and also for the gospel messengers. I'm thankful for Epaphras, our beloved brother, faithful servant. The one who brought the gospel to this little city in Turkey. Hey, I just met a guy who told me about another guy. Can I tell you about Jesus? He is the fulfillment of all the Jewish faith and tradition. And Paul is thankful. Like as we are a little over a year old as a church, I want to always grow in thankfulness. And Paul starts his letter with just thanking God for what has already happened because the gospel is powerful. But now he switches gears, and now he's going to go into a pretty intense prayer here. Paul is going to now start to ask questions about help. I want help. What is he asking for here? And here's what's fascinating. Is those first four verses, Paul could have celebrated forever because people were converted. The gospel grew. People turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. Great. Mission accomplished. He switches. He's like, the end game of Christianity is not just converts. Jesus does not just want us to go out and through our words and our actions and our deeds, get people to adhere, believe, admit, confess to Jesus Christ being Lord. Paul says, I want you to be changed. Like from the inside out. My counselor that my wife and I talk to says this a lot. 
And I didn't like it at first, but I've grown to like it. He says, here's what you need. Here's what your wife needs from you. Here's what your family needs. Here's what anyone around you needs from you, Josh. They need your transformed and transforming presence, which is his way to say, they need you to be converted, but they also need you to be daily, moment by moment, converted more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. You're transformed. You need to be transformed by Jesus. You need to place your faith, but you also need a transforming presence. You need change ongoing in your life. We as a church want people to come in here and meet Jesus. We don't just then want them knock it off like, yes, we got another convert. We want that person to be transformed more and more and more. And that's what we're going to see now as Paul dives into this prayer. What does he pray for with these people? Like, what am I praying for for my family? What are you praying for for your family? What are you praying for for you? We're about to sort of get this open book of Paul's heart for these people. And it's going to be very telling. As I was studying this, I'm like, I wonder what people are asking questions about. Like, what's the deep longing of people's heart? How do I go about, I'll just Google that. And I said, what is Googled most often? Like, what questions are people asking? Do you want to know the top question in 2021? 78 million people a month get on their phone, get on their laptop, get on there and ask this question. What shows should I be watching? And you're like, well, that's lame. I Googled that last night. (laughs) Second would be, what's my IP address, which is hilarious. And in the top 10 for like the last umpteen years is this question, which I love because I've asked this so many times. How many ounces in a cup. (laughs) It's like, seriously, I'm like, is it eight? Is it six? I remember. I'll just Google that. And by the way, what show should I be watching while I'm at it? What should we be praying for? What should we be hoping for? Paul is going to tell us as we dive into this. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard that you Put your faith in Jesus. Here's what we, Paul, Epaphras, Timothy, we've been praying this for you. What have we been praying, Paul? I see a few things here. Here's the first thing. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pause right there. Here's the first of Paul's prayers for the Colossian church. To know what God wants. First thing on Paul's list, I want you to understand my will and have all spiritual knowledge and understanding. I want you not just to have a little bit. I want you to be filled with it. That word filled is literally filled or controlled by. I want you, church, to be controlled by this, knowing what God really wants. What does God want? Like if we, if we could grow in an awareness of that, we would be doing great. That's why Paul prays, what does God want? Like, this is a confusing world. I just read an article on the Atlantic, and the title is this, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. And it goes on to say, basically where we're at culturally, and then it kind of says, in Gen Z, so that would be like in their 20s and below, like, 
I'm sorry we did this to you, but the world sucks now. And here's a line from there. And it's, they use the Tower of Babel. The story of Babel is the best metaphor I've found for what has happened to America in the 2010s. As for this fractured country we now inhabit, something has gone terribly wrong, and very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth, and we are cut off from one another and from the past. What is America like right now? It's like Tower of Babel. No one can connect. And the author's point is, Gen Z, I'm sorry. And it's all, you can read it, it's very long. I sent it to my wife, she's like, pass, that's way too long. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be human, very hard. And in America, it's uniquely hard. Well, what do we need? Like, what's the solution to live in this hard day and age? Here's a few options. The first one is just put your head in the sand. Uh, take the form of like an Amish sort of lifestyle. I'm like, I'm going to remove myself from society. I think more and more in young people I meet, it's like, I'm going to pour myself into an experiential, delightful life. I'm going to bounce from experience to experience to experience to experience so that I don't ever have to actually look at the Tower of Babel shambles around me. Paul, what would you have us do as a church? Come Amish, is that... Or just bounce around experience. He would say, pray for all spiritual knowledge and understanding so that you might know how to live in this day and age because it is not natural to any of us. Start praying for, to know what God wants. Like in all things. Like just a few things from my own life. I'm praying right now over my oldest kid just kind of when to do the technology thing. He wants a cell phone. He's been asking since he was in kindergarten. I've said no since. And one of my big prayers right now that I think God will answer soon is like, how do I do, how do I unroll this technology in his life? I think I'm asking for spiritual understanding and wisdom and insight. God, give it to me. That doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to ask lots of questions like, hey, what'd you do? But I'm praying, God. A bigger one that I don't really have an end game. I don't know how this is going to, but there's this hard, hard family situations going on. I'm just praying, God, like, what? What does it look like to be faithful to you in the midst of this carnage? God, I need spiritual wisdom and understanding. This church plan is a, is a result of years of prayer. Probably 2016, my wife and I start praying, what do you got next for us? 2019, it seems like people saying, hey, what about over here in North Phoenix? What have you thought about planting a church? Two and a half years of praying, seeking the Lord, fasting. God, what, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I just want to be where you are, and I want to do what you want me to do. What do you? Three years of praying. I say that to say, like, this isn't like, you know, I prayed this morning, and I, I think by this afternoon it's going to show up. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes there is no answer coming. And sometimes it's like God wants you to press into prayer for more spiritual knowledge wisdom, and understanding. That's the first thing Paul prays for this young church in Colossae. What's the next thing he prays for? Chapter 1, verse 10 there. So we want to know what God wants, verse 10, and we also, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Pause right there. Paul says, here's the second thing. I pray that you, Redemption North Mountain, would walk in a manner 
worthy of your calling so that your Father in heaven would look down and be pleased. The number one issue I have as a pastor in navigating people's lives is this. Like, all walks, doesn't matter, male, female, it's God, some sense of God is just really, really disappointed in me. And it's sort of like my head's hung down low. What do I do about that? And we read this passage now that sort of could add fuel to that fire of like angst. And also Paul's praying this, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling so that we might please our heavenly father. How does that kind of sync up with this idea that a lot of us in this room are like already like, I'm not nailing it. God's probably pretty disappointed in me. I think a few things. Here's, here's the main thing underneath that is just, and this is going to sound harsher than it is, but it's just bad theology. It's a lack of understanding of what the gospel accomplished for you. If Jesus really went to the cross and took all your sin and gave you his righteousness, you stand 100% positionally great with the Father in heaven. You are good. When you get to heaven, you are, you're good. It's a... It's sort of this, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is how do you get right with God. Sanctification is how do you become more like God. Glorification is what am I going to be like when I finally meet God. And we take these two, Tim Keller says, justification and sanctification, we switch them. And we base our justification. Am I right with God based off how much I'm looking like I'm supposed to be looking? He's like, no, no, no. Justification comes first. You are 100% forgiven. You are righteous. It's a bad theology that all of us have just issues with, honestly. But here's the other thing. And this, it's also because of sin. Like, why do you feel like God's disappointed? Because you're in sin, maybe. Like, one of the hardest things for young pastors to learn is how to let people sit with the uncomfortable awkwardness of the sin that they have to deal with, that my words can't fix, that I can't pull them out of. And depending on your personality style, some of us like to help people and rescue people, and I get it. But part of good pastoring, good shepherding, good parenting is just helping people sit in the uncomfortable nature of what has been caused by their sinful choices. So maybe, like I was meeting with a leader and asked, is it, you think it's sin that I want to, you know, lead in this way, da, da, da? Easy answer would be yes or no. The more wise answer is maybe. And you've got to do the work to wrestle with that. Like it could be sin. But here's the other reason I think people have a hard time. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy in a way that God is pleased is I think we just don't have a theology of what it means to please God. Like we have a theology of what it means to get saved. All right, I'm in. But beyond that, okay, what am I doing now? Like, is it an option to please God? And you sort of have two theological camps here. You've got this sort of big Bible, big God, big sovereignty, big reform God. A lot of people in this camp have a hard time thinking about their day-to-day actions pleasing God. Because God has done so much of the work. He saved me. He pursued me. He did the work. It's all God, 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 God. And the second I start to take credit for anything, it feels like, ah. So you got that camp. Like, I don't know if it's, 
Should I even think about my life pleasing God? And I would say absolutely 100% yes. I was taking some guys 10 years ago through this leadership training, and one of the articles I made them read was by Wayne Grudem. And it was simply, how do you please God by your obedience? And all these guys were like ruffled by it. Like, whoa, only the gospel pleases God. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ pleases God. Our work, filthy rags we are. Yes and amen, but now you are a new creation and you can please God. Paul's going to tell children, obey your parents. Why? Because it pleases God. Husbands, do this because it pleases God. Do you have a theology that your life could be pleasing, bringing a smile upon God's face? So some of us, our theology, we want to protect God's sovereignty and not take him too much credit. We still, like when we leave here, we can do stuff to please God. The other camp is sort of a, I don't, I don't know if it's a younger thing. I was doing premarital with this couple a while back, and I wasn't going to do their wedding. They were living together and doing the whole deal. And they're like, why shouldn't we be doing this? And they're like, there's a lot of practical answers I could give. But the only answer I could come up with is because it's not pleasing God. And they're like right over the top of their head. Like some of us don't have a category that what matters is the pleasure of God on our life. You can walk in a manner worthy that is pleasing to your Father in heaven. That does not take away the theology of the big gospel, but it does say we have lives that matter here and now. That's the second thing. Third thing is this. We want to do work that truly matters. Where do I see that at? So we want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We want to live our lives pleasing to him and also bearing fruit in every good work. Pause right there. We want to bear fruit. We want to abide in Jesus so that our lives would bear good fruit. I planted an apple tree last year outside my son Jude's window because he loves apples. And I'm like, I don't, you're supposed to plant two apples together because of cross-pollination. I'm like, I don't have money for the second one. I hope this works. <laughs> and that sucker is full of apple trees. And it caught me off guard. I did not see it coming. That's the Christian life. Like in good soil, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then just before you know it, like, oh, I was patient right there. Where did that come from? You're bearing fruit. And that's what Paul's praying for for us, that we would bear fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against these there are no law. And Paul prays that we would have more fruit in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces. He prays that we would bear much fruit. And that can sound like really church. What does it look like to bear fruit? Do I have to like go into ministry? No. Like all the missionary people I talk to that are doing work overseas, like the number one avenue of missionary activity that is just exploding across the globe is business ventures. Business people. Business people going to this place, going to Turkey, going to China, and starting businesses, being involved in business, and the gospel is bearing fruit for, from their work on the ground as businessmen and businesswomen. It's not a church-specific thing. This, the fruit is not limited to these walls. It's all of our life. My friend leads this group of young guys out in the East Valley, and he, it's called a SIFT group. He calls it S-I-F-T, and it's some Christians, but it's a lot of non-Christian, like college-age guys. SIFT is subdue the earth. In the image of God, 
for the good of our neighbor to the glory of God. And he just takes these guys and he basically does projects in the city of Chandler and fixes it up. And he reminds them, why are we doing this? Because we are called to subdue the earth in the image of God. We were made in the image of God. We were reflections. We are image bearers of God. Why are we doing this? For the good of our neighbor. And why else? To the glory of God. He is teaching people that bearing much fruit is worth it. Paul, what else do you have? What else are you praying for? Next line in there. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Like what a sweet, simple prayer. Oftentimes, this has happened multiple occasions. It did not happen this Sunday. I'm a little disappointed, but I'll be sermon prepping and a song lyric will come into my mind and I just start singing it. I want to know you, God. Like I know a friend, simple gospel. I'm like, I bet Chandler is going to play that on Sunday. And most times it's like, yes, we're synced up. And I looked and we're not playing that song today. (laughs) But that's what Paul's praying for us, that we would know God. Like we know a king personally, like we know a friend. We would know, I pray that you would increase in the knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer says, what you think about God when you close your eyes is the most important thing about you. What do you think about God? Paul is saying, I'm praying for more knowledge of God. How do you get to know God? In his word. My wife is reading through Harry Potter for the second time now. Chandler Cruz is reading through Harry Potter for the first time. Apparently, it's a great book series. I have not read it yet. But we've got a lot of Harry Potter fans. For better or for worse, some of you are like, whoa, this took a turn. This was a good church until this very moment now. But there's a, there's a girl goes to our church who loves Harry Potter, loved, her as a, loved it as a kid, got to go to, what's it, Wizardville in Orlando, Florida, whatever it's called. What's it called? Yes, Wizard. Whatever. There she is. She's in this room. I love it. And her family tells the story that she walks into Hogwarts and just bursts into tears. Like, I'm here. This is, <clears throat> I love, I love this place. I love Harry. I just, uh, How did she fall in love with a fictional character? She opened up a book and she read the story. How do we fall in love with the most non-fictional person in the universe, Jesus Christ, the most true person in the universe? We open up his book and we pray to God that we would increase in the knowledge of God. That's what Paul prays for, that we would increase and know him more and more. Next thing he says, Verse 11, next prayer. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Stop right there. I know it's a little choppy. So we got now to have divine power for life. That being strengthened is a passive, meaning we can't take the power. There's nothing we can do. We have to be filled with an external power. What's the power? It's divine power. It's the Holy Spirit in our life. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would be strengthened. Why? So you can have patience and endurance and all joy. Now, just think, I was praying this this morning, like, where in my life is there a situation, a person, something happening where I don't have complete patience, complete endurance with full joy? And I've got a lot of things I can think of. Well, what's the solution? How do I fix those things? Paul would say you need to stop and pray that the powerful working of the Holy Spirit would enter your life into that particular situation to give you endurance 
and patience and joy. We need to be strengthened by the power of the Spirit. Jesus Christ. My quiet time last week, I was just shook. It was this t- the temptation of Jesus. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit, God in the flesh. He doesn't need more Godness. He has it all. And it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And then it says he was led by the Holy Spirit. And then it says in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, needs to be full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more does Josh Watt, far from being Jesus Christ, need to stop and say, God, I need power right now. Give me your power, please. Paul says, church at Colossae, you've got a lot going on. Here's what you need. You need power. And then finally he ends with this as far as what he's praying for. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. Finally, he says, I want you to grow in gratitude. Like, look at that list right there. It's not all that sexy. It's not all that like it's going to happen now. But that's what Paul prays for this church that is about in the stage of life we're at. In the same geographical setting where it's like, oh, we're in a city, but nobody really thinks much about us. With the same sort of issues, we got legalism stuff, we've got secular stuff creeping in, and people trying to figure out how to parent and how to do life and how to do economics in this. And Paul says, before I get into all the details, here's what I'm praying for. I am praying that you know what God wants, that God's will would be something you pray for and seek out. I'm praying that you want to live lives that make God proud, not to squash out the gospel, but out of the overflow of knowing Jesus by his gospel. I want you to know that your work really matters if you're bearing fruit in accordance with godliness. And I want you to know God more. I pray that the knowledge of God would increase in your life. And I want you to have divine power for all things necessary for life. And I want you to grow in thanksgiving to your Father in heaven. And that's what Paul is praying for this church. And I think it's a great set of prayers we should pray as a church. That's what Paul says. Here's how I want this church help. Thank you. Here's how you pray. Here's how you say help when you pray. And then how does Paul end his talk here in this little prayer? Verse 13, he goes to the wow part. He has delivered us. Just pause for a second right there. Up until this point, Paul is saying, you, you, you. You're this. I'm praying this for you. I'm praying this for you. This happened to you. I'm praying this for you. And then verse 13, he sort of shifts And now he includes himself. What does Paul now include himself in with this whole prayer? He has delivered us. Paul's about to gospel it. And he brings himself into the fold. And he says, let's just remind ourselves of what we have here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Paul ends his little prayer with just a like gospel wow moment. Like, and we were once in darkness. We were once in bondage. That's what redemption means is you need to be purchased out of slavery. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. We've been brought out of darkness, church. Redemption, North Mountain. That's what we're praying for. We want to be these things, grow in the knowledge of God. We want all this stuff. But we never want to be a church that then walks away and forgets the gospel foundation that we stand on as we pray. We have been transferred 
from darkness into his glorious light in the kingdom of his beloved son. And we're going to walk through the next two months looking at his beloved son, King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the Bible, the fact that you've just been speaking long ago and in many ways to prophets and to scribes and to teachers. And now in this moment, you've spoken by your son. And we get to know that son by opening up this book. And we get to see Jesus Christ supreme over all things. So, Lord, thank you for a chance to just learn from Jesus, worship Jesus, sit under the kingship of Jesus as a church as we open up this book. So, Father, be with us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.